When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Soccer Show and I'll look back at the 2023 Champions League final. Yes, it wasn't a classic and that's a pity, but it was a historic treble for Man City. When the game lacked any shine or lacquer, along came John Stones as a wide attacker. And with the biggest highlight besides the Pepsi kickoff show, the ball was in the net, courtesy of Rodrigo. It looked like Inter might come through, but a few lines were fluffed by Lukaku. For poor Kevin De Bruyne, it was a victory of sorts and a truly big win for the washing of sports. My name's Ryan Bailey. Joining me today to, to discuss the big one, former Istanbul resident Taylor Rockwell. Howdy doody. Howdy doody, my friend. I, I am a former resident. It was nice to see Istanbul get some uh, some love, although I did enjoy in the beginning uh, the commentators at Clyde Tilsley saying, uh, not able to convince any of Istanbul's big clubs to move here. And it's like, yeah, because one of them is in another continent on the other side of the waterway, and two of them about an hour and a half away because Istanbul is big. That is why they haven't mm. gone there. But still, uh, a lovely stadium, sort of. A lovely game, sort of. Congratulations to Manchester City. Ryan, for you, when did you start writing that rhyming introduction? I was just going to ask, Taylor. Uh, I was just going to ask. 87th minute. Really? Nicely yeah. done, my friend. I was wondering if you had sort of pre-written some things and then were just hoping that things turned out the way you had written them. I, I try. I try. We're recording. Literally, I don't think the trophy has been lifted as we record right oh, now. Oh, we're missing Mika that? Richards is still very passionately <laughs> telling people to stay tuned to Paramount <laughs> at this point. I've heard the commercial music. We're holding for a break music uh, too many times today already. Um, but it was good to see Istanbul in the spotlight, Tay-Tay. Although, as you mentioned there, the stadium, from reports I was reading, is about mm-hmm. an hour from the city centre where the yeah. fans were congregating. Uh, this was a 10pm local kickoff. The mm-hmm. buses to get fans to the stadium started at 1 p.m. Nine hours before kickoff. That's, uh... I don't know uh, why you would take... I mean, you could take the Megabus, I guess, which will get you there somewhat quickly, but you are packed in there. Uh, but you do have trams that take you there. I, w- I would have gone the tram route. You could have walked there. I believe it's still inside the city walls, so that would have been yeah. a lovely little excursion. Many, many videos of people walking down the highways towards the stadium as well. Oh, yes. yeah, that is yes. the downside. It is sort of Americanized in that it is on a highway and sort of away from anything. So mm. it's not quite there, like right in the city center the way the other three big clubs are. That one is a bit of a hike oh, through some uh, through some highways. And then you'd still have to walk another mile to get to the post office, uh, as I had to do several times. Because but, why have a central post office when hey, you can hey, have Taylor, it 40 okay. miles away? Life is a highway. Cars, the movie taught us that. It's okay. It's okay. Anyway, <laughs> joining us, a man who knows... Now, the- I'm going to spend the rest of the show trying to remember who wrote Life is a Highway, and it's going to bother me. I know the um, Rascal Flats covered it for the Cars movie. I can't remember who did the original. Look it up, Taylor. Oh, Look it Ryan. up. Joining us, a man who knows that Pep definitely didn't overthink this game and was uh, happy with a super normal Man City performance here. Joe Lowry, how are you, sir? <laughs> I, I am doing great. It is not as late for me as it is for you. It's the middle of the afternoon here, so I am awake. I'm active. I also wanted to give you credit, Ryan, for writing that intro because normally you have like a full week to do it or or at least a day knowing what the show of the next day is going to be. To hear that you did it starting at the 87th minute on is is truly impressive. I also like the Cars movie. Great film. Like that that was tossed in some out of this intro. And if folks couldn't tell, we're slightly concerned about being able to fill 45 minutes on an episode. Hence why Taylor is talking about post offices in minute so, 30 of this episode. Joe, it's an interesting point you make there. And let me just respond. Does anyone else feel like whenever you wear the kind of blue and white uh, hoop stripe shirt that Joe is wearing, that it instantly makes you look Parisian? Because I feel like Joe instantly looks French. Venice Gondolier. Venice Gondolier. Good audio. Let's um, let's pull back even further. Webster's Dictionary defines a podcast oh, as... <laughs> uh, joining us uh, to round out our foursome, a man who loves to see John Stones with his shirt ripped open. Oh, no, wait, that's me. But also here, Graham Ruffin. Hello. 
Hello, Ryan Bailey. The sad thing is, is as, so, as soon as I saw that happen, as, so, as soon as I saw John Stones' abs, I knew there was going to be a message in our Slack about that. And lo and behold, about 10 seconds later, yes, there was indeed. Did you screenshot it, Ryan? Is it now your screensaver? I did screenshot it. <laughs> I did. The old person took a picture of the TV, actually, uh, which is close enough. But uh, TSS Player of the Year deserves no less from me, I'd say. Ryan, um, on that note, we did have uh, some ice cream in the house. Ice cream was being had during this game and I like had a little bit and I was like maybe I should have some more and that was the moment that Denzel Dumfries lifted up his shirt to wipe his brow and it was like a 16 pack I'd never seen that before and I was like okay maybe I don't need the second serving of ice cream thanks for that Denzel (laughs) all right well uh lots to talk about in this episode another classic rip-roaring Champions League final the fourth one consecutive that's ended in a one nil scoreline Rodri as we mentioned getting the goal his second Champions League goal of the campaign uh, so Graham, let's do a tight 15 minutes on the opening ceremony then, the Pepsi kickoff show as we mentioned. Uh, how did we feel about that? Uh, you don't have to answer that if you don't want to. I mean, it was fine as far as these things go. I've, I've seen worse. I mean, I found it relatively entertaining, although they seem to be becoming more of a thing year on year. Mm-hmm. So last year I was kind of only half watching the Champions League final because I was away to see Paul McCartney that same night, which was very enjoyable. This Pepsi halftime show or whatever it's called, kickoff show, was not up to the standard of a Paul McCartney show, but it was... It was okay. But, yeah. Was was there any Mr. Q equivalent involved here or, or Morgan Freeman? That's that's really the only opening ceremony show that I've watched because Ryan and Graham forced us to watch it Mr. before Q. the World Cup started. Do we have like a, a Mr. S or I don't know, like some something a little something a little Mr. different T, for this Mr. one? Mr. Turkey. Mr. Mr. Turkey. Mr. F. Yeah, his name is Erdogan, and he was just uh unanimously reelected. Oh, wow. yeah. We've gone dark. Yeah. yeah, we have. Um we we've had this debate conversation of sorts uh in the past but you all do seem to if not care enjoy the the pregame or the opening ceremony people you all meeting yeah, british yeah, people what what is it that makes you all sort of like interested in that because so for me stupid. it's always like the game starts at three so i will be turning my television on at 259 it's so uh, stupid that's why it's entertaining if you just embrace the stupidity stupidity of it all it's instantly more uh, enjoyable yeah. okay but but there have to be opening ceremonies that you have actually enjoyed and that's my question is like because i never get into like oh they're like no, i'm genuinely not trying to take shots here but like interpretive dance is never going to make me i think unless you're there it's not like you're not going to get the spec like, oh fireworks on television by the way never film fireworks it's never a good idea no one wants to see fireworks on your tiny phone uh but <laughs> like like i just the opening ceremony i feel like unless you're there or unless it is a truly global spectacle it doesn't really do that much aside from feel like a thing that they felt they had to do to try to create more spectacle that's exactly it for me taylor i think they're ridiculous and i think the reason i I think the champions league ones are ridiculous is because they're doing it because they feel they have to they feel they have to have more specter and spectacularly about this whole thing they feel it has to be like an olympic opening ceremony or a super bowl where most people are just fine with, you know, some fireworks, maybe a bit of uh, light show at the start. That'll be fine. We don't need uh, a couple of pop stars miming along uh, very out of sync to their tracks um, at the start of a game. Great. I did enjoy the sort of Trojan horsing of the Champions League theme tune. UEFA getting a guy to mm. play it on the piano to ensure that the Man City fans didn't yeah. boo it because nobody knew, nobody knew what was going on. I have to expect them really... to start playing the succession theme tune. Yeah. Did yeah. that really happen? Yeah. 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 As they're, they're like, walking out, yeah. We can't boo a piano. What's going on here? It was, it was very good <laughs> we subterfuge. Are, we are people from, of class. Uh, UEFA pulled off a, a genius move there. Anyway, uh, we're, we're about 10 minutes into this podcast. We should probably actually talk about some of the soccer wide don't we? Uh, Joe, why don't you start us off? This wasn't the Man City that I feel like we've seen for most of this season. A little bit disconnected, lacking the fluidity, quite sloppy at times, I'd say. A lot of unforced errors during this game. Do we accredit that to nervousness on City's part or do we think it was Inter who started brightly and seemed to set up right? I think it's Inter. I think a lot of it is Inter. And, and we'll talk more about City and, and some different things that Pep did and some different things that the individual players did as we go along here. But I was incredibly impressed with Inter Milan. We've talked a lot recently, both on the Patreon, on the main feed. Like, How do you stop Manchester City? How, how do you do that? How do you possibly make this happen? And there were a couple of things that we tossed out. One is your goalkeeper needs to have a good game. And Andre Onana, I thought by and large, had a good game when it came to making saves. So they kind of checked that box pretty early on. The second main thing is you need to be organized. Like you need to be extremely organized defensively to know, okay, this is where we're going to step. This is who's going to be responsible for who in each phase of the game. This is how we're going to transition back into our defensive shape. This is how our shape is going to shift from moment to moment. 
And and you watch this game through, like the biggest theme was Man City's possession against Inter's defense, which we expected here. But it, it was Inter making their moves so, so well. Normally we expect them to be in this 5-3-2 shape, and they were for stretches back when they were in a lower block and at times pressing high up the field as well. But it was so fluid. You know, they're in that base shape. But it would be Nico Barella, who's playing as the right-sided central midfielder, stepping forward almost into a front three so that they can go player for player against Man City's back three when Man City were building through possession. So you have Barella shifting forward onto Nathan Ake. You'd have the the two midfielders sort of shifting side to side and marking and Brozovic and and, uh, Chalinolu behind. And then you had one of the center backs being super aggressive to come in and help them match man for man in midfield. It was a really disciplined and uh, I mean, they're one, they're one moment away, right? Like really they're one breakthrough away. City created very, very little in this game. They weren't especially good. They didn't look especially creative. They weren't especially sharp, right? And you kind of mentioned those things. They're one moment away from keeping this thing nil-nil and maybe getting past extra time and getting into penalties. And that for me was, a, it was a much better performance than I thought we were going to see for Inter. And even though they lose this game, I came away really impressed with what Simeone Inzaghi and what this group of players on the field for Inter brought in this match. Yeah, I agree with all that. I thought in the first half, Inter were the more impressive of the two teams. They were much more aggressive than I expected. There was a match they played against Lazio, I think it was maybe over a month ago, where we saw this sort of aggression from Inter and Lazio, who are a possession side, I wouldn't say terribly similar to Man City, but in terms of how they like to control games, there's there's an overlap there. And so Inter went very aggressive in that game, and we saw that in the first half of, of, of this match. It wasn't just the aggression of swarming City and jumping into tackles, but it was the second part of what they were doing. The, the, the bit that Joe mentions there were, was they were one pass away or one ball away from being in, and it was playing through those waves of the City counter-press that was super impressive to me. Players like Barella, even uh, Latara Martinez, when he was dropping deep, he was spinning and, and, and getting into that space. And just if their execution had been slightly better, yeah. DeMarco was very proactive in the first half of getting forward. If a pass into him had been a little bit sharper, if he'd taken a better first touch and got a shot away, I could see a world where Inter score in that, in that first half. But I did get the sense at halftime that they would fade in the yeah. second half, that maybe City would adjust. Obviously, City, it felt like, were a little bit scrambled in the first half, maybe not expecting Inter to be as aggressive as they were. And then also you have the Kevin De Bruyne injury, which I think shakes them as well. And in the second half, it just felt like City got to grips a little bit more and then that um, that coincided with Inter fading as well. So the, yeah. the, the first half felt like Inter's opportunity and, and they really could have scored with a slightly better execution in that first half. Yeah, I, I was talking with a youth coach, uh, an academy director before the World Cup. And it's just sort of a conversation that struck up. And we got on to talking about sort of how these games kind of flow between really good teams that control the ball and, and other teams that set up in a more defensive way. And he said something to to the effect of, well, you know, almost any good team can defend in a low block for 60 minutes or so. Like, like they can control the game and they can stay mentally focused and they can stay drilled in for 60 minutes. The, the challenge is it's so hard to do that against the best of the best for 90 minutes. And I think we saw that theme kind of play out in this game. Rodri scoring in the 68th minute. Inter knew what was coming. Right, the only lineup change they made from the uh, from from the semifinals against Milan was putting Brozovic into their midfield over Mkhitaryan. Like they they understood we're gonna need every ounce of experience in big games, every ounce of of savvy that we can have in that number six spot because we're gonna be overloaded almost constantly. Inter knew all of that stuff and they executed it so so well for the vast majority of this match. The thing is, even though City didn't have their best game, it's just so darn hard to hang in there for 90 plus minutes including stoppage time against this Man City team or against any team that can play this really well-drilled possession style and it was just a moment or two away for Inter in this match yeah a a, a couple things for me I, I pretty much agree entirely with what Joe and Graham have already covered so far I would just add I think this was Inter being very, very good, very, very up for it in the first half. I also feel, a la uh, the Ted Lasso finale, this isn't really a spoiler, but I wonder if they watched uh, City a montage of like the road to the final and how we got here, and it made them maybe too emotional, and so they were not quite uh, playing their game when they came out to start. But I also think this felt to me similar to the FA Cup final uh, uh, last week, of uh, time is lost all meeting apparently, uh, that... I think in the league, City know maybe we'll drop some points here and there, but we can we will grind it out over the long term because if like we have the talent, we have the ability, we know how we want to play. Even if some team 
does their exact game plan and gets lucky and springs one on us and we end up losing a game or drawing a game over the course of the season, we will obviously end up making up that ground. But I think these two felt to me like games in which they were very aware that something was on the line. And to lose these games, that's it. And so with the FA Cup final, I think you see a little bit of sloppiness, a little bit of hesitation, or just not quite being fully at speed the way we've seen City in the last two months or so. Uh, And I think that there were moments of that in this game as well. Graham, interestingly, to your point, I went back and looked it up. The Lazio game that I, I think you're talking about was in late April, April 30th. Inter win that game 3-1, to one, but Lazio score first. Lazio are up 1-0 until the 78th minute, and then Inter score their three goals. And so to your point, this does feel similar in terms of kind of the timeline, but then also that Inter had those chances. And I think you're absolutely right. I think they have close to almost two uh, XG for this one. City are under one XG. Uh, And Inter, if they took their chances, I think this could have gone to extra time and it could have been a very different story, but they're not able to really press some of the advantage they have in that first half. And I think City were fine. City created plenty, or not plenty, but at least a couple good chances in that first half. But I think once it was 1-0, it sort of felt like Inter were just throwing things and seeing what could happen. And they do create some chaos. They do create opportunities. But there was a good five-minute chunk where City just killed the game off from like the 82nd to the 87th minute. And I think it started to feel less and less like some big thing was going to happen at the end. And that's a difference with between City this season and last season, yeah, where yeah. City now have that ability. We spoke about it in the second leg of the quarterfinal against Bayern Munich, which was a similar sort of match, to be honest, in the way that Bayern Munich were very aggressive, particularly in the first half of that game, created kind of many transition moments. Had they been a little bit sharper in the final third, they would have they would have scored in that in that match, or they they, they did score in that match, then they would have scored more than one. Um, and it felt very similar to that sort of game, to that game. And Man City just have that ability now to not drop out of phases of matches, but almost just conserve and and protect what they have. And I, I feel like having that direct option where you can go long to Haaland. And actually, I felt Acerbi and Bastoni did did pretty well handling the physicality of, of Haaland, certainly yeah. better than Victor Lindelof did uh, after <laughs> 13 seconds for Manchester United in last week's FA Cup final. But to Thanks, have yeah. that option, it feels like, not just from a footballing point of view, sorry, Taylor, from a footballing <laughs> point of view, it allows City to take the pressure off themselves. But from a mental point of view as well, having that direct option just allows them to kind of reset take a breath, and yeah, as I say, big difference between this season and last season. All right, let's take a quick break. When we come back, let's dig a little deeper into some of the key performances, the key moments, and some of the setups as well. Back shortly. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Hey folks, this is Taylor from the Total Soccer Show reminding you that we are inching ever closer to the start of the summer transfer window, which means there are teams that will buy and sell their players early, there are teams that will leave that business very late, and there are teams that will operate in between, but no matter what, It's going to be a chaotic situation. There's going to be offers coming through willingly. There's going to be transactions to be tracked and processed and make sure that enough money is there. There's going to be probably angry clubs calling to complain. There are many things to deal with. And unfortunately for those clubs, there is no sort of business tool that makes things easier, makes transactions simpler, gets the business done efficiently and effectively. But for the small businesses around the globe, there is such a service, Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're auctioning autographed apparel or selling sleek kits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And you can sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. And I really appreciate that about Shopify. No matter how big you are, no matter how fast you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. 
Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, and Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklyn, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. That's as many countries as will be selling players in the transfer window this summer. Plus, Shopify's extensive help resources are there to support your success every step of the way, because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash TSS, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash TSS now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash TSS. Total Soccer Show, we are talking about Manchester City's Champions League victory, the first Premier League, Premier League side to achieve a treble since Manchester United did so in 1999. Uh, Taylor, we did wonder whether Pep would tinker and overthinker in this one. It was uh, Kyle Walker who was uh, omitted from the starting lineup here, uh, came on eventually, of course, maybe the back injury playing a part there, Nathan Ake coming in for him. Uh, but the main point of interest, perhaps, for City was the use of John Stones, who was hugging the touchline for quite a lot mm-hmm. of this game. He was in a very, oh, an even more different role than we've expected lately, I suppose. Yeah, and in and in typical Pep fashion, uh, to to Joe's continuing argument that formations are are kind of dumb on occasion. When I saw where he was taking up position, I was like, I don't understand why we're all making a big deal of this. They're in a four two three one. This looks exactly like a fo- oh no wait suddenly he's in the oh now he's on the left side. Like he it was so much movement from John Stones and so much fluidity from the way City were playing. Uh, I think Joe laid this out in the group chat, and I would agree with it. I, I think after the first half against Real Madrid, I think there was a feeling by Pep and certain members of his coaching staff that they were playing too narrow and and were too focused on numbers through the middle. And I think they made that adjustment against Madrid to have those number eights take up wider positions, to have the wingers boots on the chalk. And I think that's kind of what they were going for here with John Stones, is trying to put him in positions where maybe Inter would spotlight him, try to limit his effectiveness on the ball. And so if you spread him out wide or pull him out wide, you either create space for him or you have an interplayer go with him and now you've opened up just a little bit more space through the middle. So I think that's what they were going for. I don't know if it worked all that well. Joe, did you think that was wise or did you have moments of maybe just maybe it was... Graham, do we want to say it? Do we want to say the phrase? A pep overthink. A pep overthink. <laughs> I, thought, I thought there was real glimpses of that throughout this match, right? The, the reason Ooh, why I won't just go and say Joe it. Come. This is the closest Joe will come. It, it really that, is. I think. Yeah. Wait until we get him to say that Lukaku should have scored later in the podcast. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that one that one won't happen. But um, like, there, there were glimpses of it, right? Because John Stones has done a phenomenal job of becoming a defensive midfielder. But the difference between a, a center back and a, a defensive midfielder, I think, is a lot smaller than the difference between a center back and like an attacking midfielder winger hybrid, which is kind of what he was doing in this game. And John Stones, and and the reason why I, I don't I'm not just gonna go out and say like Pep overthought it, it's not just because City won, right? I, I think a lot of times we fall into the trap of letting the results dictate how we talk about teams, which is is wrong, I think. But it's also because I just don't think it was particularly meaningful for the game. Like if John Stones had been a little bit deeper or if he'd been a little bit narrower or if he'd been playing center back, it it almost didn't feel like it mattered a ton because of how good Inter's shape was. Like Stones could be five yards forward and three yards wider as he was in this game, but he really wasn't getting on the ball anyway. Like like they weren't finding dangerous positions. And so I, I think there were understandable reasons for why Pep might go to the diamond and he's done that in big games before, I believe, including the Champions League against Chelsea where they lost, like he basically went to a three diamond three in this game with Grealish and Bernardo wide for the vast majority of the game. But I think you, you try to, Taylor's use at stretch enters midfield, which is very narrow by design from Inzaghi. You try to use stones and it was, uh, it was Kevin De Bruyne for the first 30-ish minutes. And then it was Gundogan shifting a little bit wider and Phil Foden filling in the number 10 spot. You try to use those players to stretch out Inter's midfield line, not, not to have stones wide on the touchline, not to have De Bruyne or Gundogan wide on the touchline, but just wide enough so that those players on the half spaces and maybe Inter are stretched. And then you can split and find the number 10 uh, in in the pocket, and then he can turn and go forward and find Holland in behind, which is where City's real first best chance of the game came from, by the way, in the 27th minute. That's Holland's shot. Rodri finding Gundogan in space behind Inter's midfield line, just as I said. Then it's Gundogan to De Bruyne, and De Bruyne feeds Holland with his classic Holland run and shot thing that Onana saves. Like I think there were real reasons for it. It just it didn't work. Like Nothing that City threw at Inter in the first half, and, and even for large portions of the second half, had much of any impact. So... I think in, in large part, Pep will kind of get away from some of that overthinking narrative, did he or didn't he, both because City won 
and just because of how good Inter was. I mean, there's a reason why we spent the first segment talking about post offices, cars, and Inter instead of post offices, cars, <laughs> and city. It's because Inter were the surprise package here. Yeah, I don't. I said this in our in our group chat during the during the game, and we're recording this immediately after the match. So this is a situation where like a second watch through would would probably help me when I can keep a closer eye closer eye on John Stones. I didn't have a great read on what the thought process was from Pep, so I appreciate Joe you you kind of outlining that. But to go one step further. Is the reason he's in the team over someone like, you know, Riyad Mahrez, who is a natural right winger, is because essentially he can cover the three different roles that he was that he was meant to in this team. So in, in, in possession, a lot of the time he is the, or sorry, out of possession, he is the right back in the back in the, in a back four. He's then a central midfielder in possession and then also moving out to the right side, whereas obviously Riyad Mahrez can't play central midfield and right back in a back four. Is the idea that, Stones can play right back in a back four. In a back four, he's good in central midfield, and well, he's not—he's not great as a right winger. But there's no one else that can kind of span those three roles. Is yeah. that why he gets that position? I think that's part of it. And Graham, kind of what you're talking about there, as I understand it, is control, right? You know, the reason why Riyad Mahrez can't play as a number six or as a, as a right back is because he doesn't really provide you with the same stability. He's not going to win one v one duels. He's not going to pinch in in the counter press in the same way that Stones is. He's not going to win those one v one battles that you want your players to win in, in rest defense and then as you're going to counter press. Like, Stones does that stuff and you do lose a lot with him in the attack. Maybe you lose a lot less with him as a straight-up number six where I think he's been fantastic this year to the point where Taylor will pick him as TSS Player of the Year and I, I can almost yes, kind of understand why. Like, I think there are, are, are real reasons and, and a lot of that is control. The one other thing I'll say on Stones in, in his role in this game, we talk about how you know, maybe didn't work all that much and, and City didn't really create much and maybe... It would have been better for them to have another midfielder on from the jump. Maybe it would have been better, at least in some ways, for them to have Mares on. What I will say is Stone's pulling wide, as he does on the goal sequence. Like, that's that's not nothing in, in terms of how it led to Rodri's goal. Like, he's wide enough that DeMarco, who's playing as the left wing back for, for Inter in this game, has to cheat a little bit. And it's not really cheating in terms of his positioning in this moment, but... DeMarco's like, like aware of Stones out on the wing. His body positioning is such that if the ball goes out to Stones as Akanji's driving forward and eventually slips in Bernardo right inside of DeMarco, DeMarco's body positioning is, is such that if the ball goes out to Stones, he's ready to close him down. And so Stones pulling wide, which wasn't him just like setting up shop on the wing. It was just a response to Bernardo Silva tucking inside. You'll, you'll see that if you go back there and watch. He's just covering for Bernardo Silva. Like he's just the, the counterweight here. Like he he's doing something. So I don't know that it's a decision I would have made. I don't know what I would have done in this case. I'm not a manager for a reason. But I mean, there's something to the fact that Stones was a little bit higher and he was in a high and wide position yeah. on the goal and it, it kind of worked. And and that goal, the way it unfolded, just kind of proves how difficult it is to get the better of Man City, who I don't think played a great game, who really didn't have many of those moments where their positioning actually created um, kind of breakthrough moments in, in possession play. But as you say, Joe, um, Stone's position positioning is a factor in DeMarco's positioning. Then you have Bastoni, who, as I, who I said earlier, I thought had a very good game. And in the first half, Bastoni, Acherbi and, and the inter midfield are snapping at the tackles. They're swarming Man City. That's the one time where, where he, he jumps out and, and he doesn't get it right. All of a sudden, the space between Stones and, and DeMarco and then Bastoni jumping out, the space is there for Bernardo. And that was pretty much the only time in the whole game that I can that I can rem remember anyway, where we had that kind of classic Man City cutback move where they get to the byline. And yes, there's a little bit of luck with the deflection off the back of the interplayer, which then makes the ball fall into the perfect place for R Rodrigo to sweep at home. But nonetheless, that's the, the only real opening of that kind that we saw for Man City. And that's enough for them to win the game. And that's, that's how it goes against a team of this quality. At the risk of asking a somewhat stupid question that maybe we've already covered, what would be the point of limiting John Stones on the ball? Because, like, I don't think of him as being, you know, the the threader of the needle, the Luka Modric, the, the Kevin De Bruyne. But I look at his numbers basically up until the FA Cup final, and they are way better than they were in the FA Cup final and this game. And I don't think that's a knock against him. I think it's the way he was defended because he had like 70 touches in the first leg against Real Madrid, 62 of 67 passing. In that second leg, the 4-0 win, 64 touches, 54 of 59 passing. That's what he has against uh, Brighton near the end of the season. But then uh, in these two games, it's 51 touches, it's 55 touches, it's... 
33 of 37 and it's 37 of 42. So he's on the ball less and he's and he's able to pass the ball less. And I do feel like that is part of why City don't look as fluid. But I have a hard time myself explaining why limiting John Stones limits the rest of the attack other than just limiting a sort of transition midfielder limits the way they want to transition to attack. Yeah, I don't I don't know that I have a great answer for you, Taylor. I think a big part of John Stones being limited in this game was Pep actively choosing to move him forward into mm-hmm. a role where he is going to be a little bit less impactful in terms of raw touches and passes. You know, maybe there's a part here that in general, I don't think Erling Holland was very impactful in this game. Like he had a couple of nice moments. That's a good point. At, mm-hmm. at least not impactful with his uh with his on-ball activity. I think a yeah. lot of the off-ball runs helped City find space, but we talked about on the big thing recently that Pep, Pep mentioned this idea that with Holland in the team, they now have to figure out how to use their spare man in a different way. Like, like they're not they're not using ten outfield players anymore by and large. You know, maybe sometimes Holland's dropping, and they're kind of using nine with one in the box. And Holland, you you take away John Stones then, or just any of City's other outfield players, like you constrict the space a little bit more, or or you're a little bit more aware of Stones, who really has become a, a key player for this team. And all of a sudden, City are are maybe down like another player, another half player. And so you're making life more difficult them for them by constricting space and making it more difficult for all of these players to move. I don't know if that's what Inter were thinking in this match, but man, they like I said in the first segment, they did a really good job of controlling City for large portions. Well, there was a key moment, of course, in the game that we've referred to in the 36th minute when Kevin De Bruyne goes out injured. The second time he's gone out injured in the Champions League final, we feel very sorry for him. But Taylor, perhaps we can talk about Pep's in-game management he had an hour sure. of this game without Kevin De Bruyne, and it seemed like there was lots of micro calculations going on with Pep on the side. Like Kyle Walker seemed like he came on like five times, or like it was going on and off. <laughs> he did. The bib was going on and off. It seems like there's a lot, of, a lot of very precise in game management, obviously, and coping without your key player for for the best part of the game as well. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, it was a. Uh, it, it made the game much more marginal, I suppose. I, I think. I think it was interesting to me that at the end of the first half, uh, Manuel Akanji, it's 45 plus one. Akanji gets the ball about 20, 25 yards out and has that shot and hits it over. And the commentator said, Clyde Tildesley said, uh, like, I bet one of the first things Pep says when that uh, locker room door closes is to have a word with Akanji. But Akanji, what are you doing? Why would you shoot there? And I don't think that he went in there and just berated his players. But that moment stood out to me because the goal is basically Akanji being in the exact same position. And instead of just thinking, I'll have a go, he threads the needle perfectly for Bernardo Silva, whose cutback is then partially blocked, deflected. And that's how Rodri is there to hit it uh, with a late arriving run. But I have a feeling that some of the adjustments he made were just to remind them, play our game, play a smart game, look for the passes, the options are there, the runs will be there, pick your moments, don't just force stuff, don't settle for the low percentage shot when other opportunities will be created. And I think little, like, he, I'm sure there's little adjustments along the way, but I think there was probably, and I th- it felt to me like throughout this game, there was also a focused intensity from Pep Guardiola in trying to remain positive. And that's the thing we've seen yeah. to close out this season is a lot of, I, I, I said this in the group chat, the way he sort of is like, like trying <laughs> to like, I'm happy right now. I'm not just going to berate you. It felt like he was trying to keep the energy positive and keep everybody up for it. And I, I do think that was what he was going for is don't get down on yourselves. Don't overthink. Don't start doing stupid stuff, play our game and we will be fine. And that is sort of how it worked out. I think there are little adjustments al- along the way. And I think he does use Erling Holland as a, oh, okay, they're just going to mark you every single place, then make more runs, make more runs away from goal, take defenders with you, occupy defenders, and open up space for other players. Uh, I'm sure there's other tweaks that Joe and Graham have spotted, but that was a big one, is I think it was just that, the parallel imagery of Manuel Akanji shooting from one spot and then threading the needle for another stood out to me. Pep spent the majority of the first half shouting "relax," which is yes. kind of like an oxymoron. Yeah. yeah. Um, but it would have, it would surprise me it if was, he got into got into halftime and, and did the opposite after having was, done that. It was Wolf. Sorry, Graham. I keep stepping on you, but it was Wolf Farrell in old school, just in the locker room screaming, "This is no time to freak out." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. So yeah. as I say, it would it'd be surprising to me if at halftime was him just berating his players. I think he would be reinforcing that relax message in typical Pep fashion which i don't know if that relaxes anyone actually peppy says relax he had the uh he had the touchline chalk on his knees a few times in exasperation wore a suit for this game yeah i mean yeah. that's a statement on his opinion on the fa cup final i know yeah the hoodie was upgraded good to see good to see um why don't we talk a little bit about inter um Romelu lukaku coming on in this game 
<sighs> and his Timberland boots. Yeah. Um, so basically, his his three the three standout moments for him stand out <laughs> oh, no. maybe for Man City in this case. Sort of blocking a Demarco headed opportunity. I think the Having... highest XG of the game was that Demarco <laughs> uh, oh, header that oh he blocked. Yeah. Um, then he has the header from three yards out, unmarked that he hits basically at Edison. A great safe medicine, but basically Lukaku could have put it somewhere else. And then minutes afterwards, having that shot that was dragged massively wide, it was, it was another disappointing evening for Melim Lukaku. Graham, what did? What do we make of this? It, it seems like, you know, he had a shot to his confidence at the World Cup and this one's going to hit him hard as well, you'd imagine. It was a pretty cumbersome performance, really. It was, it was, it was sort of like the performances we saw from him after his return from injury. And actually, it's, it's kind of in contrast with what we've seen from him in the last few weeks where he has looked leaner and more like the player um, under Conte who was excellent in quick transition that is one thing that I would say is the I think the change in game state went against him where City scored the the only goal of the game the winner through Rodri and then those moments the transition moments for Inter kind of just disappear entirely and City can can themselves kind of sit quite deep and absorb and that limits in my opinion that has always limited Romelu Lukaku's effectiveness is when he has to play against low defensive blocks so that went against them but yeah the the header in particular I mean the 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 blocked header I don't think that's going in I know other I've seen other people saying oh you know he's he's, he's blocked a certain goal there Ruben Diaz is back in the line right I, there I, he's I, literally I think standing he's making, right yeah there. I exactly. think he's making that clearance the second one's not great I'm not going to go as far as saying he's, he should have scored but it's as close as I have come on this podcast to saying he should have scored yeah it, it, it's um, you I mean, can't you can't make should've. an argument. Sorry, Taylor, you can't make an argument that like Lukaku hit that well, right? I mean, I, I I won't even argue with that. Like, it is it is probably one of the only places in all the places, I guess, being just the dotted outline of Aderson's body. Like, if you hit it anywhere but there, he had so little time to react to Aderson. You know, I I guess it was a good save and that his positioning was good. But the ball is like if you if you stop time in that moment and plugged any one of us in goal, like the ball's gonna hit off all of our knees yep. as well. So. I, I am I am sympathetic for Lukaku because that is a difficult moment that I'm sure he will be thinking about throughout the evening tonight. And I did think Aderson was uh, pretty impressive in this game. He has some interesting moments in possession. Uh, mm. He has some some interesting positioning as well. He gets screamed at by his teammates for one of those. Uh, but I think moments like the Lautaro Martinez shot from very tight angle. Uh, but when you watched again from one angle, he is clearly doing the like oh i'm going to i'm going to do the fifa pass i'm going to pass this across goal to a wide open lukaku and he does that the whole way and then tries to shoot and it's a credit to Adarison that he cuts down the angle to take away that pass a little bit but then also cuts away the angle for the shot uh the way he comes and collects that final long ball in through like 18 different players he brings it down he has a few other saves uh including one i think that he he turns just wide when onana's in the box but that one joe to your point uh, the replay makes it pretty clear he doesn't know like really where that shot is. He's yeah. just trying to get back across and it hits him. And I think for Lukaku, you aim for the corners there. And I think, and that does feel like one where he had time, just enough time to overthink about it and think, at least just put this on frame. That's all you have to do versus when you don't have to think and you can just flick it into the side netting. Uh, that would have been the difference maker. I think Lukaku coming on was probably, uh, to Graham's point, it, it doesn't really fit when he comes on because he is playing a more defensive team. I wouldn't say, though, that City were in any anything approximating a low defensive block, though. So I don't think that's Well, they necessarily... were for, like, the last kind of, um, you know, when when the Lukaku header happens and then Ederson makes the save from... I actually didn't catch who had the, the header late on from the corner kick. For for that part period of the game, it felt like Inter yeah, actually true. were keep creating a bit of chaos. Like, they, they are camped. Mad City. And in those moments, I feel like Lukaku, even though he has the headed opportunity, I, I wonder if you kind of flip it, if you have Lukaku in the first half starting the game to with Martinez and they, when they had those kind of mini mm. transition and full transition moments, if you have Lukaku in, in that phase of the match and then Zeko for the final phase of the match, I wonder if that works better. Yeah, yeah. The only thing I'll add on Lukaku, because I mean, I think it's it's right that everybody's down on him in this game because the big moments, Ryan, that you mentioned in leading us into this discussion point, they are all big moments, genuinely, and none of them went Lukaku's way. The one thing I'll say, this won't really be something that I think many folks remember, and I'm not sure how important it is. That's a great preamble to making a point on a podcast, is is that the shot from DeMarco that he blocks in the 67th, 68th minute, it's like right after Rodri scores, so maybe a minute or so after that. 
he's only in position to block the shot because he has like created the chaos in the first place. So I, I will give this credit to Lukaku. He's a big boy. Like he's a big dude and he is moving people out of the way to give DeMarco the first shot. Like if you go back through and watch the sequence, you can find it on Twitter somewhere with CBS. Like he's he's moving people around so that DeMarco can have that first shot that hits off the woodwork. Like I don't know how you weigh all of these things and decide like that was good enough to outweigh the shot he misses later or to outweigh the the fact that he blocks DeMarco's second shot. But I do think that's that's worth pointing out is that Lukaku did influence the game for Inter in a positive way. Taylor, you talked about that being the highest XG chance of the game. I haven't looked, but I assume you're right. That just straight up doesn't happen without Lukaku. So I, I'm really curious to see, thinking forward, he's going back to Chelsea. Like, what on earth happens now? Does he actually become a Poch player and, and is involved there? Does he go somewhere else? Can he be a regular starter at this point in his career? I don't know the answers to any of those things, but I pretty firmly believe that a team is better off for having Romelu Lukaku on their squad. Not, not today, though. Not today. Tomorrow no. or yesterday. Just I'm actually today. a huge Lukaku fan. Just not to, yeah, yeah. Just not today. <laughs> to I think show. going going back to his Man United days. I was texting with a buddy of mine. Uh, hello, Patrick. If you're listening, he's not. Uh, but we, I was talking Hi, to him about like like about his time with Manchester United, and he said basically what we've already said. He's wasteful. Has bricks for feet. He misses one to two clear cut chances every single game that I watch. Nope. But but maybe it's a testament to his movement. Uh, but he misses one shot he should hit every single game. Joe's going to disagree with that. But I think to your point, Joe, the, the movement is there. The effort is there. I think there's little things like I didn't love. This is just a me, a personal thing. The way I, I would like to like my teammates to play is when Lautaro Martinez goes for that shot. Lukaku is triple marked in the middle. of Like that pass is not on. And when Lautaro shoots, Lukaku does that like I, it was right here and just holds it and like stares at him for a good 10 seconds. And it's just like, what does that accomplish? That means nothing other than that they're going to give the ball to you later and then you got to back it up. And when you get it later and you don't back it up, do you expect them to give you that same level of, of, of cattiness back? I just think like I would much rather have a player come in and pick his teammates up and, and try to be like, next one, next one, and kind of keep everybody going. And it didn't feel like that energy was there from him. It also didn't feel like it was there from many of the other changes Inter made in this one. It sort of felt like it was more panic than it was team play as this game played out, uh, especially when City were up 1-0. All right, let's take another quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk a little bit more about uh, City and Inter, obviously, and maybe a bit more about Pep and his legacy going forward back shortly. Total Soccer Show, welcome back to our Champions League final special. Um... Graham, I caught a little bit of the CBS action just before we hit record on this here pod. And we had Thierry Henry on the broadcast saying there can be no debates at all. Pep Guardiola is the best manager ever. Three Champions League titles, his second treble. And he was very defiant to anyone who might disagree with that position. I'm inclined to agree with Thierry Henry. How do you feel? Uh, this is where I'm going to have to explain my uh, distinction between best and greatest, which I don't know, even know if it makes any sense. I think Pep's the best manager of it's all another, time. It's another great way to begin a podcast point. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think Pep is the best coach slash manager of all time. And I think Ferguson is the greatest of all time. I don't know if that makes any sense. The thing that is with Ferguson is he had like a a, a, a gross overachievement in, with winning a European trophy, trophy with Aberdeen, which I, I've said on the show before, I think is I think that outweighs anything that he did at Manchester United. And Pep has never had that because he's had Barcelona, Bayern Munich and Manchester City. And when he's done something great with those teams, it hasn't necessarily been... An overachievement. What was that stat you or that that fact you talked about, Ryan? That Man City had been a favourite in every single game they played. Back so to something like ridiculous. Like, yeah, it was, it was like uh, yeah, exactly. 1912, away, away, um, away at Napoli in 2017 was the last game they weren't the favourite. Which is nuts. And that is that is the one. I know there's an asterisk as well around all the financial doping stuff, but that is also an asterisk in my mind. Is it's not an overachievement. And so, yeah, that that's the kind of strange, nonsensical, yeah. non-logical differentiation I make in my mind. No, I, Graham, I think there's something to that, right? I'm glad, Ryan, you asked Graham first because I'm going to straight up bow out of answering this question because I, I honestly don't know how we're supposed to tell. Like, I, I don't know how you're supposed to tell who the greatest manager is. They're not on the field. Like, we can guess at some of the tactical stuff, which is what we did for 20, 30 minutes of this show so far. And I think we, you know, we make some good points, hopefully, throughout the last how long we've all been doing this show together, we're going to get some of the answers right. But ultimately, we don't really know what happens. And so I'll kind of just defer and, and also just read this Pep Guardiola quote as my answer and sort of the justification for my answer 
that I, I'm not sure. Pep said in, in the recent uh, press conferences before this game, like the key to his success, he said, like have Messi in the past, have Holland now. This is my success. I'm not joking. It's the truth. Every manager who has had success in the past, present, and future, it's because of strong institutions and exceptional players. Now, I do think Pep is like cutting out some credit that he deserves and that managers that have success deserve. Keeping a locker room together, keeping them unified, having a game plan, like those are important things. And, and a lot of those things we can gauge. But the reality is the best of the best the best managers and the biggest jobs tend to do those things really, really well. And beyond that, it's just so hard for me, at least, to discern who's better, who's worse. Is it Ferguson? Is it Pep? Is it you know whoever? I, I just don't know. So Pep, I'm confident, at least, in saying is a good manager, and he is probably one of the best to ever do it. Beyond that, it just gets real murky for me. Pep is a guarantee, right? That's the best way that I can I can describe him. If you get him a, a group of good players you will win stuff. And that isn't always the case for groups of good players that, you know, groups of good players underachieve all the time. Pep doesn't really do that. Maybe season, maybe there have been seasons where he has done that, but taking a broader look at each of his three clubs, he's a guarantee. That's that's the best way I can describe him. What do you think, Taylor? As, as Pep, does Pep need to prove anything else to us, basically? Does he need to go to a, a lesser team, if you will, and, and, and raise them up for us to really... Richmond kickers. Yeah. Does he need to come to the kickers? Does he does he need to really focus on MLS Cup before we can really regard him? <laughs> I think it's, I think it's US Open Cup if anything. I want to okay. see I want to see MLS Cup, Open Cup and why not uh League's Cup double all or triple all at once. That's the true treble I think we can all agree. So you get let's the get into of those United. three. That'd be impressive. I mean, I I do think it's I, I I thought about this as the game was ending is like because I instantly said, like, Pep is the greatest club manager of all time. Maybe the greatest manager of all time. And then, and then I thought, because he won one game, like, this, is, this was the thing that was holding him back. was like, okay, now he's won one more Champions League. So that's the defining thing. And I think it's, it's a, you have one less thing to kind of, like, use as an argument against him. Is oh, he only ever won the Champions League with Barcelona. And I, and I think, we were talking about this before we started recording. I think people who don't like Pep for whatever reason or think he's overrated for whatever reason are just going to move on to the next talking point of, oh, he only manages huge clubs with huge budgets. Um, so I don't think anyone is necessarily going to be swayed by anything we say here, but I, I do think he's the best club manager of all time. Uh, I think the way he has learned and adapted and evolved his style and isn't just bringing the exact same style to each new club. And if they don't play that way, tough luck, I'm firing everybody uh, and, and maybe failing. I think he's willing to certainly move players on if they don't fit exactly how he wants them to fit or after he gives them maybe one strike. He seems like a one strike kind of manager. Uh, but, I, but I think the way he's changed his teams and played into certain team strengths, the Bayern team he inherits where, oh, I've got two really good wingers. I guess I got to play with wingers now. Uh, like I, I think he, he has found ways to get the best out of his team. This Man City team, just how much of an inevitable juggernaut that became I, I i think i won't be able to forget them all that much even if this treble we've talked about it before doesn't feel like that spectacular of achievement and i think part of that is because of the sports washing and the money put into manchester city certainly i do think part of it is because they've just been so dominant for so many months now that it's just felt like yeah they're gonna steamroll every opponent this is what we expected probably two months ago and here we are with them doing exactly that yeah, it felt inevitable, and we, we messaged a bit about that in Slack before we started recording. This game in particular, with City being one of the widest Champions League favorites in a really, really long time, this felt inevitable, and in credit to Inter that it didn't completely turn out that way. One other question on the on the manager and the greatest manager of all time discussion. The one aspect that really does interest me, Taylor, is, is where you and Ryan, I think, just kind of brought us, which is, you know, does a manager have to show that they can do it with a lesser group of players to really be called like this great manager that can do it in every circumstance. You guys have been around for a bit longer than I have when it comes to watching soccer. Careful. Like, how, how, yeah, I'm trying to word myself uh, kindly here, Ryan. Like, has someone done that? Like, at least in the modern age of soccer, has someone gone, like a, a really good manager that's one at the highest level, I can't think of someone who's gone and said like, oh yeah, all right, I'll go to like Australia or I'll go to Major League Soccer and have success. I'll go to, to League MX. I can't think of anyone that's ever done that, so I don't really understand. You mean, why you people mean someone make who's deliberately, 
You mean someone that's deliberately sought that challenge out? Or or I guess you could flip it and go the other way around. Like in, in say, that, you know, you're starting that. from the bottom and now going like but who is that person? Who is so Mourinho, so Mourinho did success? it with Porto, yeah. of course. Mourinho yeah. did it with Porto and in, in the Champions League. And then I would even argue did it with Inter in two thousand and ten with that team, winning not just a Champions League title but but a treble and beating Pep's great Barcelona team on the way to doing it that that was a gross overachievement for me yeah. but you're right joe it does it doesn't happen very very often at all yeah and, yeah, and i think i think that's joe to your like i do think it's sorry to 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 your question the opposite one it's usually a manager comes in they start with a smaller club and and sort of like oh like they got them promoted and they had this philosophy and this style and then they get another gig and then they get that team to finish in like the top 6 spots or whatever it may be i think by nature, you're starting out with smaller clubs, generally speaking, yeah. with managers, or even in, in Mourinho's case with Porto, not a club that anybody expected to win the Champions League. The difference here is just that Pep takes over Barcelona and was Barcelona B manager. But like, so I think because of that, I, I think that is an unfair uh, criticism. I really do, because it is just basically asking him to do something so that you, a person who's not convinced by his resume, will then be convinced by his resume. He doesn't owe us anything. He can do whatever he wants. And and I think maybe he wouldn't be as successful, but maybe he would be even more successful because now he has the reputation that if he if he takes over a team in Major League Soccer, people are going to want to play for him because he's Pep and people are going to follow what he wants of them the way they wouldn't for another coach because he's Pep Guardiola. You're going to do as he says. He makes Ted Lasso squeal and Coach Beard squeal. <laughs> uh, so I'm going to do whatever he wants. So I think he has that level of standing, that level of status that... I think he would be pretty successful regardless of where he went. With that said, money definitely helps. Joe, Joe can I propose an, a potential answer to your question? Is Claudio yeah. Ranieri, who has gone from managing Juventus's and Roma's and that kind of level to Leicester and then won a Premier League with them. Is that is that the greatness answer? Is that someone who's dropped down, arguably? Is, but I he think dropped that down is... because he was not good enough for the <laughs> right. elite level anymore. Right, right. that's a good shout. <laughs> okay. And Ranieri is one that I thought about. Like my issue with all these, and, and I, don't, I feel like it's so hard to have these kind of managerial discussions as to who's the best. Like Jose Mourinho has done some impressive things, and in some ways he's done more impressive things than Pep Guardiola. But you can't make an argument that that he's had the longevity. Like I know he's been coaching for a bit longer at, at the top level than Pep Guardiola, but Jose Mourinho is clearly coaching a different level of team and has had a different level, read lower level of success in recent years than Pep. Like it, it's just so hard. I, I guess I kind of end up leaning to, to what you said, Taylor, about Pep being the best. But it. I just have such a hard time making a confident assertion when there's so much context around the club and the money and what you spend and the longevity and the institution and the players, as even you know Pep said earlier this week. I've said before that Johan Cruyff is my favorite player ever that I would never want to meet because I have a feeling in person he would he would make me not like him very much. I have a feeling Pep Guardiola is the greatest manager that I would never want to play for uh, because I, I do think he has, it seems to me, incredibly high standards for what he expects of you. And if you are a player who listens and processes that information and does exactly what he asks, or at the very least, if you're doing it wrong, learns from him, listens to him, processes it, and moves on, I, I think that like it will work out well. But if you're a player who's a little bit slower on the uptake or a little bit more individual, it does seem to me like he has far less patience for that and is a manager who will quickly say, nope, you don't do it, next guy in. And I understand why you have to do that, but having been in that position where the coach sort of looked at me and thought, you're not doing it. I'm going to need somebody else who will. It's not a good feeling. And it, and it makes you feel very quickly like you are on the outside and there's nothing you can do. And so there is that little wrinkle for me of, I think, a manager who's able to, and Graham, this is where I would agree with you. It does feel like Sir Alex Ferguson oftentimes could motivate players to that next level. I think Jurgen Klopp has done that. But I also think Pep has done that. He has gotten players to elevate their game or adjust their game or adapt their game or just add new uh, uh, levels to it, like John Stones, who we already talked about as being a consensus player of the year across the world, Ballon d'Or winner, John, yep. John Stones. Yep. Uh, so I, I think he can still do it, but I, I do think there is that one little thing that I, I do see as a negative against Pep. Uh, my last question for you, Graham. Does Pep Guardiola... Why, why does Pep Guardiola stick around at Man City now? What does he money? have left to achieve? Does he need more money? <laughs> really? <laughs> Do you think I don't? I genuinely don't think he's motivated by that. I don't. Well, get see, that the impression. thing is, rich people are not like normal people. Like Lionel Messi, even entertaining the thought of going to Saudi Arabia. Like, why did he even consider that? It seems like rich people just want more money all the time. But 
I think um, with Pep, there's a real lack of other options for him right now. I, I, a few years ago, I thought Juventus was where he would go next. When Juventus were in that kind of very dominant position in Italy and they, they had money and they were spending money on Ronaldo and a number of other players and that felt like his next his next landing, his next destination because he would like to complete the set of European big leagues. Now, obviously, Juventus are not in that position at all. And so I can't I, I can't really envisage where he, where he goes from now because obviously Barcelona have Xavi. He's not going to go to Real Madrid for obvious reasons. He's done Bayern Munich. He's not going to go anywhere else in the, in the Bundesliga. He's done the Premier League. He's not going to go anywhere else in the Premier League. PSG feels like a bad fit for yeah. everyone, but particularly for, for, for Pep Guardiola. So I, I don't really know where he goes from here other than maybe to Florida, a national team. Yeah, to Graham, Ryan? <laughs> Graham that, that's where that's where I end up. Not Florida. Uh, no one needs to go to Florida. Uh, but uh, a national team. I, I think there would probably be an appeal to being the manager who then also wins a World Cup with everything else he has won. I also think away from just the silverware side of things, he seems to be a manager who likes to, as I've already talked about, evolve his style, but then also sort of see what's possible and look at what people are doing and think, well, why is that the conventional wisdom? How can that be done differently? How can we make a center back become a central midfielder? How can we make a left back become yeah. a central midfielder? How can we make a forward become a holding midfielder? Why not? And so I, can, I could I see, can see him, him. Sorry to jump in. Jump in I can see him really relishing this whole idea, this whole notion that yep. people have about international yep. football of, yep. ah, you can't do it that way because it's international yep. soccer. That's what I could see. So I could see him taking over, a, like a national team like Portugal, who are, seem like they should have the talent to win a World Cup, but often or always fall short, I guess. They've never won the World Cup. Uh, I could see him taking over a national team that is at close to or at that level, or maybe it's Brazil or somebody like yeah, that. Brazil Brazil's seems the one like that always be, gets mentioned. I just, I don't know. I don't know. I guess he's coached plenty of Brazilians and gotten success. Uh, I think I'm just like devolving to stereotypes of uh, Jogo Benito versus highly instructional half space coaching i don't know uh but but i think international is one and then the other one i don't know why i feel this way but i i could see him not even for the money but going to the middle east uh he did that at the end of his playing career and i could see if he's presented with a unique challenge or just an opportunity to i don't know not be highly in the spotlight all the time and not be looked at as like this visionary coach and what's he going to win next. Maybe that is the place he goes. Maybe he goes somewhere where there's just less of a spotlight and does what he wants and wins some leagues there. And then he takes that next gig. I could see either one of those happening. NYCFC surely has to be a possibility as well. If he's looking, to, I'm, I'm being serious because he, own, he owns a place in New York, right? And that, that's where he went on his sabbatical for a year. Clearly likes the city. And obviously you have the, the city football group link. It's, Graham, um, you're almost there. So, Graham, it, it's youth soccer referee in New York City as, <laughs> as he did during his sabbatical. That's well, the one. I don't think <laughs> a, a, like a wild turn like that, Joe, is that outrageous. For me, maybe this is a reference, Taylor, you'd appreciate. He's like the Brian Eno of soccer is Pep Guardiola. Like, Baronino will make U2 records, and then he'll make an album. The producer, of, you mean? As a producer, yeah. He's, he produces like a U2 I album. I thought you were or, talking about a, a Brazilian soccer player. That's no, no, that. sorry, sorry. He's a, he's a, music, Brian he's a Eno? musical yeah, producer. Yeah, Brian Eno, actually, is what it is. <laughs> <laughs> but then... But then it's like, <laughs> So it's like my wife thinking that Bruce Arena's name is like like Bruce Arena the ballerina. Bruce Arena, yeah, uh -huh. same thing. <laughs> anyway, please continue. Brian Eno. Yeah. My my analogy is that Brian Eno, regarded as a genius in the musical sphere, makes like stadium albums for U two for these big acts. Then he'll go and make an album of Birdsong. Like, in I, I could I I think Pep Guardiola has the same mentality where he'll just try a new. Like Taylor says, he'd he'd be up for a new challenge, not necessarily Mexico. one that's. Like a U2 album, if that makes TSS sense. TSS co-host, Pep Guardiola. There could be hey! five. If he wants to go make a bird song, we can be the birds. No, I'm out. That doesn't sound like much fun. I'm, I'm no, with Taylor. Know. Like Pep oh, would be a nightmare of, of a colleague. I'm so <laughs> in. I'm so in. All right. Well, Joe's issue to come and get me, please. We should probably uh, wrap this one up here for now. Taylor Rockwell, thank you very much for your contributions. Any further notes or comments on the Champions League 2023 final? The A-League for Pep? Get him down to Australia and see what happens. Why not? That could be a fun experiment. Uh, no, I think uh, Man City, uh, worthy winners, deserved winners of this and their treble. Uh, congratulations to them, much as it pains me. I also am interested to see what teams do to try to close this gap. Liverpool already making signings. Manchester United maybe having a new owner. Who knows there? Chelsea, I'm sure, will make roughly 400 more signings before the start of next season. But I think as long as Manchester City 
have Pep, have Holland, have most of this squad together, even if they lose Gundogan or a few other little pieces. Uh, Gundogan is not a little piece, but a few other pieces. Uh, I still think it's Manchester City's title to lose next season. So uh, I think the offseason will be fascinating from a how do City stay at this level or what could derail them? And then how do other clubs make up this pretty sizable gap that seems to be there? It's, it's Pep making his birdsong album. That's what derails. That would probably That's do it. Theory. That would probably yeah. do it. I'm, Ryan, have you seen 24-Hour Party People? Of course. It's like when the, the producer is trying to record absolute silence by just walking around outside and recording whatever you can find. That's what I think of as Pep with a microphone just wandering around. Thank you for appropriately bringing up a lovely Manchester movie at the end of this podcast, Taylor Rockwell. My Joe pleasure. Lowry, thank you. I promise not to bring up Brian Eno anymore on future podcasts. No, I, I'm, I'm a big fan of his work with Hoffenheim, so I, I have no issues with that whatsoever. Excellent. Thanks, Ryan. Good stuff. Uh, Graham, thank you for teaching us the, the difference between best and greatest. We appreciate you. <laughs> thank you, Ryan Bailey, and congratulations to Man City on their treble, on their Champions League trophy, which I haven't seen them actually lift, but I assume Salt Bay lifted it for them. Yeah, in, indeed, indeed. I'm, right. I'm assuming Salt Bay's got a picture with his arm around Kevin De Bruyne crying at some point as well. We, uh, <laughs> we await to see that. But listener, thank you for joining us on this one on a special Saturday. We'll be back on the feed very shortly, but for now, bye! Bye!